I often ask myself, what do we as Christians have that is so good that it's a shame that the world has to live without it? The answer, I believe, is the good news about Jesus, and that is worth sharing. This is Adam Hill, minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I pray that today's message shares that good news and that you are richly blessed by it. Today we conclude our comeback series with a final lesson discussing the ultimate comeback. And I don't mean the absolute miracle that Alabama pulled out at the end of yesterday's Iron Bowl. Oh, yeah. Roll Tide for sure. Fourth and impossible from forever away. Somehow, Milrow throws a 40-yard perfect laser-guided missile to Isaiah Bond, securing the last-minute comeback against Auburn, at Auburn. Oh, no, it's a lot bigger than that. That's just a game. What I'm talking about today is not a game. What I'm talking about today is at the very core of our faith as Christians. And that's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this single event defines our hope and sets our faith apart from every other religious point of view. This is the pillar of our faith. You may wonder why you're still standing. <laughs> if I'm standing, you're... No, I'm just playing. Um, <clears throat> we stand in recognition of the authority of God's Word. And today I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 13 and reading through 19. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If for this life we have hope in Christ, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us and for choosing us. We thank you for your goodness and for your presence. Father, we thank you for your Son who died for us, who gave his life to show us your love for us, to win a victory that we could not win, to liberate us. God, we thank you 
for an empty tomb. It is the absolute bedrock of our faith. Speak today, Father, for your children are listening. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Think about it. A human body lies dead in a tomb. Grave clothes have been wrapped around a corpse. Embalming has been completed. The stone has been rolled across the entry. And the tomb has been sealed. Then days later, blood begins to course through those veins again. Breath enters those lungs again. The heart begins to beat again. The cells start to work again. And the body takes a breath, and the body stretches, and the body stands up, and the body comes out, and the body walks around. And the best part, this body has lost the capacity to ever die again. That's amazing. And here's the part I want you to know today. All of our comebacks, and there are a lot of comebacks in this room. All of our comebacks, and not just ours, all the comebacks that will ever happen are swallowed up in, are, or, are connected organically with, and are brought to fullness by this Come back. Because Jesus is alive again, we can come back from anything that this world can throw at us. The deepest kind of sin and the worst of evils, the devastation of crumbling and failed relationships. The rejection that you feel at a job loss. The anxiety that you feel after a failure. The general disappointment that you feel because life hasn't gone the way that you thought it was going to go or that you wanted it to go. The pain of bereavement and the loss of someone you love. The hammer of betrayal. The torment of being cheated on. Anything, you name it, and you can come back from it because of God, because of Christ, because of the empty tomb. And, 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 and what's the secret? 
Here's the secret. The secret is how Jesus' resurrection life infuses our ordinary lives with the same kind of power. Okay, have you ever thought about what if Jesus had stayed dead? Sometimes we can convince ourselves to become what, what I will call vampire Christians. We want Jesus' blood. But nothing else. Okay, I, I need you to understand this. Jesus dying for us on the cross Jesus dying for us shows us how loved we are. Jesus dying for us shows that the, the, the powers of this world are a sham. And that their greatest strength is not more powerful than God. Jesus shows us the victory that is God's. Jesus dying for us proves that he is serious and that he loves us. But it's not what proves he's God. Other people have died for people they loved. And, 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 and dying is simply the outworking of taking on the world's sin. Sin has one power, and it's death. And sin did its worst to Jesus. He took all the sin of the world on himself, and it did what it does. It killed him. But if Jesus doesn't get up, if Jesus isn't resurrected, then death wins. If Jesus doesn't come out of the tomb, death still wins. You see, this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. He's taking up a discussion with some folks who are arguing whether there was even such a thing as resurrection from the dead. And, and, and hear this, they don't mean Jesus didn't raise. They mean anyone. You see, they're pretty sure that dead things stay dead. And they scoff at the idea of resurrection. They would patronize those who believe it. They'd kind of pat them on the head and say, oh yeah, okay, and then roll their eyes. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we just read some of, has pointed out the pointlessness of life without an afterlife. And he's pointed out the despair that comes from rejecting the possibility of resurrection. He says, if there was no resurrection for anyone, then there wasn't resurrection for Jesus. And if there wasn't resurrection for Jesus, then death wins. And it's always going to win. And there's no hope for us. And the whole thing that Jesus was proclaiming, that Jesus was displaying in his life, because he came to destroy the works of the devil, according to 1 John, the whole thing that he's been doing his whole life comes crashing down. Because ultimately it's not enough if death wins. Here's the bottom line. Christianity without resurrection is not a new kingdom. 
It's just ethics. Christianity without a resurrection is not a kingdom. It's merely ethics, and it sounds just like every other religion. Telling you to be good. Do I want you to be good folks? Well, sure. I certainly don't want you to be bad. But am I here to get you to believe more in yourself? No, because that's not the gospel. The gospel is to believe in Christ because in Christ, God has done for you what all of your self-help could never do. I want you to believe in what God has done. And what God has done is conquer the sin and death that cripples me. So that I have hope not just in this life, but in the next as well. Christianity without resurrection is not a kingdom worth proclaiming. Paul says that if Jesus wasn't resurrected, there is nothing worth preaching about. I might as well just stand up here and tell you about Alabama. He says instead, Christianity would be an empty faith, and those who preach it would be the liars of the worst kind. And those who believe in it, he says, you would be pitied. You see, the resurrection has two things going for it. And here's the first one. The resurrection is the ultimate victory of God over sin and death. The God of life conquers the tyrant of sin and his henchman, death, liberating all of creation from bondage and decay. Okay, sin and death are completely destroyed because of the resurrection. In the resurrection, God puts a stamp of approval on the completed work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. That what Jesus did on the cross is given the stamp of approval. Listen to the way that it's put in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. It says that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. That the justification we sought, the being made right with God, the paying of our sin debt on the cross, all of the sacrifice of Jesus, the unmasking of the powers, all of that is given to us in the resurrection. Do you see that? He was raised to life for our justification. So, the resurrection is the ultimate victory of God over sin and death. Second, the resurrection is the great display of the, of the Father's power. The resurrection is the great display of the Father's power. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20, it says that's the immeasurable greatness of, of, of the immeasurably, the incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength which God displayed that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That this is the great power of God on display, the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the truth upon which the Christian gospel and the Christian faith balances. 
And it is the energy that fuels the hope of the, of the believer. It is the energy that fuels abundant life in the believer. Do you understand that we confess that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is also in us? You realize that's what we're saying. The power that raised Jesus is in us. You see, the resurrection guarantees that we can be free from sin and death. And it makes power available to us so that we can live our lives in victory. But some people ask, but Adam, that's, that sounds good in theory and I understand what you're saying. But is it true? Is it, is it really true? That's a good question to ask. And I want to spend some time taking a closer look. I don't, I don't do a lot of apologetics, okay, where I try to prove to you that what we believe is rational, is reasonable. But I do want you to know that you can trust the resurrection. And I want you to know why. And I'm going to do that by answering a few questions. And the first question I think we have to ask is, how dead was Jesus? <laughs> now, I know in this room, I'm going to win because I've got an audience that kind of believes this, that Jesus really died and really was raised. But do you understand there are some folks who are skeptical about whether Jesus really died on the cross. They say merely he, he fainted or he, he fell into a coma and the cool air of the tomb revived him. <laughs> the swoon theory. They say that he had a near-death experience and maybe even stopped breathing for a little while. But after a bit, he revived and he was fine. He was in bad shape, but he wasn't quite dead yet. But to answer that, how dead was he? I want you to look at how many people saw him as dead and confirmed that he was dead. The centurion at the crucifixion, he's seen his share of dead people on crosses. This is his job. Now, don't get me wrong, to become a centurion, he had to go through battle. And so, and so he spent enough time taking lives and seeing lives taken. And then he got his job at the executioner's hill. He saw the crucifixion. He saw the sky go black. He felt the earth shake. He saw Jesus hang and suffer and watched him take his last breath. He heard him say, it is finished. And when he saw how Jesus died he said surely this was a son of God he saw how he died okay as the crucifixion continued for hours on end the soldiers at the hill of Golgotha inspected the bodies checking that the guilty were dead and if they were still alive after many hours, they would break their legs, hoping that death would come more quickly. 
These men whose business and expertise was death came to Jesus and said what? He's already dead. We don't need to break his legs. One of them, though, wanted to be thorough. And he rams a spear up under Jesus' ribcage and into his heart. And from the spear hole poured blood and fluid, proving that Jesus was dead. And Joseph of Arimathea goes and he asks Pilate, can I have the body? He receives the body. And what does he do with the body? He takes it to the tomb that he's just purchased. This, this, this cleft in a hill that's been hollowed out. He probably bought it as a package deal for himself. <laughs> but he took him to the tomb. And he embalmed him. And he wrapped his body in grave clothes. You see, the point of the embalming was to prevent decay by keeping the air from reaching the body. And so they would wrap a body in linen strips dipped in an embalming fluid that would then harden into a cast. If Jesus were not dead, why would Joseph and others embalm him and prepare him? And bury him. So he was really dead. Well, okay, how empty was the tomb? Well, there was a stone rolled in front of it. And the stone had three things going for it as far as keeping it in place. All right, if you read, if you read your Bible, there's three things going for this rock. First... A stone big enough to cover the size of an average tomb in this time period would need to be somewhere between one and a half to two tons, so three to four thousand pounds. So what it has going for it is its weight. It's probably not going to be moved very much. It's levered into place, and then you would seal it. Okay, and when I say seal it, I don't mean like they put a little ribbon, you know, like, hey, there we go. Okay, it would be more or less spackled into place. Sealed. And then third, it was guarded. You see, this was all done because Jewish and Roman authorities had heard Jesus say that he would rise on the third day. And what they expected was not resurrection. What they expected was that Jesus' followers would come and try and take the body and then lie, saying he had risen. So Matthew 27 tells us, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate, and sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, Jesus they're talking about, said, after three days I'll rise again. So he, so he give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he's been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Well, take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So the penalty for breaking into a government-sealed tomb, in case you were wondering. The penalty that Rome had set was death. 
for doing that. There were likely 12 to 16 soldiers in this guard. They would do groups of, groups of three or four, and they would have four-hour shifts around the clock to make sure that a 24-hour watch could be kept. Now, the friends of Jesus would not have taken on the seal or the guards even in their boldest hour. And this, may I remind you, was not their boldest hour. They were scattered and in hiding, fearing for their own lives. They had deserted Jesus after his arrest at the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas had betrayed Jesus, selling him out for 30 silver pieces. Judas did for 30 what they would have paid 300 for. And then in grief, Judas had already taken his own life. Peter, he had already distinguished himself by denying that he even knew Jesus. Three times he swore, I don't even know who he is. The only, the only apostle, the only disciple who appears at the cross, the only apostle is John. And it's not until very late when Jesus is about to die, he makes an appearance standing there long enough for Jesus to say, please take care of my mom. The rest of the apostles, other than John, are nowhere to be found. Now, a few women had been bolder. Amen. Praise God for bold women. A few women had been bolder and had followed the burial detail to the tomb. But their reason for doing so, and this is important, was not to come later and liberate the body of Jesus. Their reason was to know where to bring spices to further anoint the dead body of Jesus after Sabbath ended. Their presence was about grieving and paying respects, not taking out guards or moving a two-ton boulder. You see, they were not in on a hoax. They were burying a friend. This was the mourning process over the one that they had thought was the Messiah, but who turned out had died. But when they get there, where are the guards? The women come back Sunday morning with their spices and they find the stone rolled away. The seal is broken, but the guards are gone. And I'll tell you, it is unlike a Roman soldier to leave their post. That would be called desertion. Penalty? Death? So where are these guys if they've been posted there? Well, Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15 tells us, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and responded to the chief or reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Namely, um, he's not there anymore. <laughs> that guy you had us watching, gone. 
When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If your report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. Where are the soldiers? They're paid off to keep quiet, to disappear. And that's when it started. Story after story of Jesus risen and appearing to people. Mary Magdalene sees him. A few disciples see him. Then the entire group of disciples sees him, even Thomas who says, I need to touch him. Jesus joins two friends on the road to Emmaus. Then get this, he appears to over 500 people at once. None of whom expected to see Jesus alive again. Maybe, maybe one or two people could hallucinate something like that. But this is far too many people for them all to see the same thing in some imaginative fantasy. And you could disprove everything by simply producing the dead body. But they don't produce the body. Ever. Do you know why? I have the audacity to believe it's because they don't have a body to produce. You know what they do have? They have lots of changed lives. Remember that band of depressed, cowering, frightened, disillusioned, lying, hiding disciples? Now look at them. They are... Mm, different now. Peter, who had sworn I don't know him, stands courageously on Pentecost Day and preaches to a crowd in Jerusalem, mincing no words, pulling no punches. He says, let all this house of Israel know therefore for certain That God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. This same Jesus that you crucified. Days later, you killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. Where does this courage come from? He's never had it in him. See, this courage comes from being convinced that he had seen the risen Christ and the promised Holy Spirit. All of the disciples, according to sources outside the Bible, suffer martyrdom. Except for John. John dies in exile. All of them die for this. And people don't die for something that they know isn't true. 
These believers were transformed by the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. One last question. What about you? Kenny, go ahead and come on up. What about you? You see, Jesus' comeback from death, never to die again, ensures that we can come back from the jaws of sin and death too. That there is no sickness, no cancer, no sin, no reversal of fortunes, no curse, no heartache. That there is nothing that is greater than Jesus. Jesus heals. Jesus restores. Jesus brings life. Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that, in crea- that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only, not only we... Or not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That just like us, all of creation is awaiting resurrection. Because in Christ, everything that was dead comes back to life. Folks, that's good news. That's the gospel. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, with Jesus, we can come back from anything. He is alive. And all of our personal comeback stories are wrapped up into that one truth. Jesus is alive. Jesus is able. He is here now and your comeback story is ready to begin. Will you place your hope, your faith, your life in him. Let's stand and praise God. A quick confession here. Truth be told, as I preach, I'm often preaching at myself. I'm saying what I need to be reminded of. Thankfully, my struggles and questions are not just mine. It turns out that being human brings some pretty universal challenges to all of us. I am so thankful for the good news of Jesus Christ. It has never let me down. I pray that today's message blessed you with the good news. Remember, you are loved and chosen.